Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. So, Lou, I've been uh, reading lots of books on domestic violence and violence against women. I was asked to participate in a hashtag 16 days initiative by the Western Australian government recently. And that runs across 16 days across November and December. And it focuses attention on violence against women and lots of Business leaders and community leaders as well as government Mm. ministers are involved and lots of information is available and and put out and made available in relation to how to get help for victims and also how to get help if you're a perpetrator. What a fantastic initiative. Yeah, it's a really good initiative. This will be the third year that it's run. And when I was first asked to join in, I could only really think of one book that touched on domestic Mm. violence, which happened to be the book I was reading at the time, which is Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko, which is a fantastic book. It won the Miles Franklin Award this year. But of course, once I started trying to think of books that touch on domestic violence, I came up with lots. And so what I'm going to be doing is... On my Instagram account, Lay Leave, my my book account, I'm going to be posting about books that touch on and deal with domestic violence and in particular violence against women. So over that period, uh, you're... yes, I'll do about four or five. Oh, posts. fantastic! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so one of the books that I've just recently read to that end is Ghost War by Sarah Moss. Mm-hmm. It's a very short book. It was shortlisted, uh, long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2019. And it opens sort of with a prologue uh, with an unnamed woman being carried out by a group of men and there's lots of chanting and drums banging and it's some kind of sinister sort of ceremony. I've got goosebumps. Yeah, and she's being stripped and having a rope put around her neck. And it's very sinister and menacing and you don't know who she is and you don't know when it is. It's quite timeless. And then the story begins in Chapter 1 and it's told by a young girl, Sylvie, in her final year of school. So she's about 17 or 18 mm. and she's come with her mother and father to join a group of archaeology students and their professor to live for several days in an experiential archaeology camp mm. as ancient Britons from the Iron Age. And they wear rough linen smocks and they forage for roots and herbs and kill rabbits and they eat these disgusting rabbit stews that are cooked up in this (laughs) revolting, hideous, like a witch's cauldron. That's what I pictured anyway. Yeah. And um, the girl's father is a bus driver, but he has an obsessive interest in ancient Britons, which is why he's brought the family on this experiential archaeology camp. And uh, he's a terrible misogynist, Mm. but... Even worse, he's physically and emotionally violent to his wife and daughter. There's not a lot of detail about that, fortunately. There is a little bit, but a lot of the violence is more by suggestion or by what's not said or just by the feelings that 
that he evokes in them and the fear that he evokes in them. It's, I must say, it's feeling very Handmaid's Tale to me. It's got that Yeah, sort of... I think it does have that feel to it. Mm. But the writing is really interesting in this book. There are quite long paragraphs and only a handful of chapters. And it only spans about five days. But the most interesting thing is that the speech or the dialogue is all contained in one long sentence with no distinguishing quotation marks. So it it all runs together so that there'll be some words, then there's some speech, open speech, but no quotation marks and then the rest but of the speech. But you can still distinguish who's... Yes, you can. Yes, it takes a little, takes a few pages to get into the swing of it. Yeah. But it does get you right inside the head mm. of Sylvie. And I think it's done to make it seem more like teenagers speak. Oh, okay. It's a lot more casual. It doesn't yeah. have the formality of traditional so writing. So more stream of conscious. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right, yeah. And then there's a sad mother who's sort of become cowed into a sort of obsequiousness in her fear of upsetting her husband. And she's just completely downtrodden and really quite a sad character. But the interest in the book is that Sylvie's never travelled south of Birmingham. Mother's a cashier in a supermarket. She's completely under her father's control. And she desperately wants to leave, but she really has no idea how to go about that. No, no. She's never travelled. She's never been overseas. She has no money. I presume she would have no passport. She has just no way of knowing how to get herself out of this. And no awareness of the outside world probably either. No. Yeah. No. So as the days go by in this camp, Sylvie befriends one of the other archaeology students, a girl named Molly, who's only a few years older than her. And she slowly starts to see what might become possible for her in her Mm. life. And it's actually rather wonderful just by seeing another girl who is just a few years older, not an, not an obvious mentor perhaps, but someone who's actually out living a proper life yes. and a full life. And they start to have conversations about what Sylvie could do once she's finished school. And she says to Molly, but I don't even know what I'm interested in, which is actually quite a common thing mm. for teenagers, I think. And Molly says well, you could be a park ranger, you could study botany. And, you know, she rattles off a whole list of things that she's observed about Sylvie that she thinks she is interested in and that she could pursue once she leaves school. Uh, So it's rather lovely just watching this Mm. development of this girl and this this influence. It's sort of that stranger comes to town or a man goes on a journey. I suppose it's both of those narratives. Mm. But obviously some very interesting things unfold, which Mm. I'm not going to say because they would be spoilers, but it's a really gripping little book and a very quick read. So it's not the the camp that they've gone on. It's not an alternative. I mean, Molly's there, so... Molly uh, yeah, and is there are other a young regular guys. girl. So there's some regular people there. Are some there. regular okay. people. The archaeology okay. professor, a mm, bit dodgy. Okay. But right. um, bit, yeah. bit of a funny old character. Yes. And he sort of lines up with the funny old dad. Okay, um, yes. So th- that's an interesting partnership to see. So it's interesting. They, they would know she would be being exposed to people. Yes. And the other archaeology students can see what is being done to her. They can see strap marks on her back. Oh, God. Um, and they know exactly what's going on. But, what, you know, like all of us, they don't really know no. what to say or how to help her or how far they should go or what they should do. No, no. So it's a fantastic book from um, that point of view. Dying to read it now. Yeah. yeah. Great taste. Yeah. 
So you've been reading a book I really loved, Lou. Yes, yes. You put me onto this book, Virginia, um, and I'm so glad you did. And I've been wanting to read it for a while. Um, this is Elizabeth is Missing by Emma Healy, a British author, which was first published in 2014. But I thought that we'd talk about it today because we've learned recently that the BBC is doing an adaptation of it. Yes. Um, in fact, they're filming at the moment as we speak with Glenda Jackson. I would love to see this on yeah, screen. She's in the lead role. Um, so perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute but the filming's due to finish soon and I believe we may we may in fact get to see it towards the end of the year. So the central character of this novel is Maud Horsham and the narrative is written from Maud's point of view and Maud's in her 80s and she's living in her own home but you become aware within the very first few pages that and Maud's mental acuity is declining. She's got a very poor short-term memory. And we're never told whether she's got dementia or Alzheimer's. We just know her memory's in decline um, and she's constantly forgetting things. But her central preoccupation is the fact that her dear friend Elizabeth is missing, hence the title of the, of the book. And now her house is full of notes on cupboards and doors that have been left to jog her memory and she also keeps copious notes for herself she's always writing things down Uh, and there's a couple of humorous scenes where Maud goes to retrieve a note that she thinks she's remembered something she needs to look at and but of course her handbag is jammed full of notes yeah so she doesn't know whether the note is relates to today or six weeks exactly exactly so it's really rather it is very sad but but also quite funny as well and I have to say it did bring back a few memories for me because as my father was declining my mum would write notes all over the house for him and I think it's a common thing that we do with elderly people we think that if we put notes on cupboards or notes on stairs that it will help help them but sometimes they don't see the notes and sometimes the note is completely out of context and they don't understand <laughs> yeah. it so it's 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 really quite heartbreaking so Maud is looked after by various carers and by a very patient daughter Helen and also the granddaughter Katie also features she's great isn't she yeah Katie? she's gorgeous she really is gorgeous and the interactions with the granddaughter are, are rather lovely I think and they provide us with a few lighter moments. Yeah, do you the, think? the granddaughter on, always on the mobile phone. Yeah, and that sort of absolutely. Thing. Yeah. And, and, of course, Maud, as the grandmother, isn't irritated by Katie's intrinsic teenagerhood. Yeah, and vice versa. And vice versa. Yeah, yeah vice versa, which yeah. is rather lovely. And, look, despite Maud's predicament, I don't think it's a gloomy book and there are some funny moments. And I think Emma Healy's done quite a good job dancing the sort of delicate balance between the humour of the silly things that elderly people do and say, but also balancing that with the respect for the elder, elderly. Yes, yeah, I think she's done yeah, that I do too. quite nicely. Yeah. So we've got, on the one hand, the chapters are set in the present with Maud aged 80 plus and the mystery of where her friend Elizabeth is, what's happened to her and why no one will believe Maud. And then on the other hand, there's an alternate storyline courtesy of Maud's very vivid memory of being a young girl in Britain after the war with her beloved sister, Suki, who has also gone missing and her and her family's constant search for Suki who is presumed to be the victim of foul play. And this is a loss that she's never really gotten over. Yeah. So, so two very significant people in Maud's life yeah. have disappeared. It's a very clever use of those two narrative streams, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. And I think particularly the, the contrast between her memory of those early years in post-war England, they're in very sharp detail. Yeah, the clarity, yes. Yeah, so she can remember 
everything very vividly, yes. the various characters that we're introduced to and the conversations with our parents and the food that they ate and the, the scenario post-war of rations in Britain. Yeah, the sparsity of everything, yeah. Um, and those memories are in stark contrast, aren't they, with, with her present-day memory because she can pretty much not yes. understand or not remember anything. She can sort of wander off in the middle of a paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Maud has experienced a lot of sort of sadness over her missing sister and this made me think how we embed memory because, you know, the search that she persisted with for her sister obviously went over a long period of time. Yes. And, and it's still ever-present in her memory. It's this long-term memory of having and it was lost trauma. her sister. And it was trauma. Yeah. So I wonder if, if people endure that kind of trauma yeah. either because they're revisiting the facts all the time or because of the intrinsic nature of a trauma itself. I think, I think it is the The memory trauma. becomes embedded. Yeah. 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 So in the present day, she sees things on the ground or she has interactions with people and they trigger the memories of Suki, but they also trigger the memories of Elizabeth. Yes, yes. So I've got a couple of things to say about the book. You know, one of them perhaps positive and one, and one perhaps an aspect of the book that sort of didn't grab me so much. She's been very skillful, I think, in writing Maud's internal dialogue with herself. So she's sort of constructed this train of thought and the ideas that pop into her head and the sort of sensory response to the things around her. But the cleverness is, of course, we know that everyone is not privy to that internal dialogue. That's right. And so the choices that she makes in response to that dialogue have not been communicated to the people around mm. her. So she's been very clever at creating the gulf of communication. That, that, it's a gulf or a wall yeah. that yeah. they can't get over. No, that, you know, you experience the frustration of mm. Maud, but the overwhelming frustration of the people around her as well mm. where they can't bridge that gap. It's almost as like if you're a visual person, it's almost like uh, Maud is behind a wall of glass. Yes, how interesting. And yeah. people, everyone else is on the other side of yes. the glass. Yes, and they're and, shouting at yeah. each other through the glass mm. and no one can mm. understand. Mm. Yeah, look, it's it's oh, it's just awful. So she's it's a no man's land, isn't it, really? Yeah. So she's sort of crafted that, you know, on the, on the one hand we have Helen, her daughter, being very caring and patient and then on the other hand being totally frustrated, frustrated mm. and exasperated with her, with, with her mother. So I thought that sort of emotional gulf was a really big plus. But I think I mentioned to you, this to you before, I did get quite frustrated with how slow the book moved on occasion. We're sort of dying to get to the end of what happened to Suki. We're dying to get to the end of what happened to Elizabeth, what has happened to Elizabeth. And I did get quite frustrated and, and found myself just dying to say, what has happened to Elizabeth? Tell her what's happened to Elizabeth. <laughs> Um, but, of course, they have told her what's happened to Elizabeth. Yes. And yes. she hasn't remembered. Yes, that's exactly right. We don't know that, though, do we? No. I, I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean. You are, you do become incredibly frustrated. You yeah. really want to know. You want to know the solutions to both of these you mysteries. You do. Which does keep you turning yeah. the pages. Yeah. yeah. And, they, and, they, and she brings it together very well at the end. Yeah. Potentially a little bit too neat it's very for my neat. liking. Yeah, yeah. But it's fabulous. And, look, Glenda Jackson is going to be sensational as Maud. Uh, I can't wait to see the BBC adaptation. I think, she I think is, it's going to be superb. She's such a great actress. Yeah. I remember seeing her in Elizabeth the first in the 70s when I was a little oh, yes. girl and she was just so severe and commanding mm. and 
powerful and, and perfect for the she role. She was perfect, and I think she would be excellent in this yeah, role. No, she'd be she's good. many, many years yeah. older now. And I, I can't wait to see how she sort of deals with all the little foibles. Yes, um, yes. I think it's going to be fabulous. So I have to say I did love the reoccurring issue of the toast, Virginia. Yes, she just endlessly ate toast. Yes, and there were notes everywhere telling her to stop yeah. eating toast. And so then she decided, well, I'll just have bread instead. I know. <laughs> I won't I know. toast it. <laughs> and even when they said to her, okay, so no toast, Mum, <laughs> she then put, oh, I think I might have some toast. <laughs> so I did think if I was visiting Maud, what would I take? And I thought, well, I would bake her a cake. Yes. And so you might have seen on the counter, Virginia, I've made us a ginger cake today. Oh, I did see a cake there. Yeah, that I love your ginger cake. I've had that once before and it was delish. So it's a beautiful cake. So in the Diving in Test Kitchen this week, well, it wasn't this week. It was yesterday I made it. Um, it's a recipe from David Herbert, who's the food writer from the Australian oh, newspaper Weekend Magazine. I love his recipes. I didn't realise he was based in London. Yeah, he's moved there and oh, bought this he? beautiful property. Oh. So he was living in Melbourne oh, for many okay. years. Oh, I think it was Melbourne. Yeah. But recently relocated. Yeah, wow. With his partner. Well, I, I, I have to say every recipe that David Herbert has in the Weekend magazine mm. works mm. and I love everything he does. So this is a delicious cake. It's easy to make. Everyone raves about it. So I'll put a link to the recipe in the Fantastic. show notes. Now, I think you've read one of Emma Healy's more recent books, I have, haven't you? I, well, it's, she's only written the two that I'm aware of and the other one is the, her second book is called Whistle in the Dark, which is excellent. It's a teenage girl who goes missing for several days and then she's found mm -hmm. safe but she's got cuts and bruises but refuses to say oh, what's happened wow. to her. And it's told from the, her mother's point of view. So she is incredibly frustrated because the police liaison lady has said to her, you know, don't push her, you know, don't ask her what's happened. You know, she'll tell you eventually and we don't want to upset her. So the mother is sort of dancing around, turning herself inside out, trying to figure out what on earth happened in this missing three or four days. And, of course, this puts the daughter in a very powerful position in yes. the family and it affects all the dynamics. And you start to suspect everybody. You start to suspect the father. The mother starts to sort of oh, almost lose fantastic. the plot. And so it's written in a way where you you can see that the mother is becoming a little bit unhinged yeah. and she's starting to suspect everyone and who... who Paranoia. Yeah, there's a, and you're not sure whether it's hinged in reality or whether she's just losing it and going off on a merry dance. I think this one might be adapted to screen as well. Yeah, it would make a really good Fantastic. Film. And it's got, there's lots of suspense, lots of wrong assumptions, and it has a very good ending, really great ending. Excellent. It's very dramatic and unexpected. Another one to add to the stack. Yes. So. And what else have you been diving into? I've been listening to the podcast Stuff You Should Know. Oh, yes, yes. Have you seen that one? It's sort of got a red yes, square. Yep. And it is so good. Mm. If you're like me and you just love a bit of general knowledge yeah, or just trivia. Interesting yeah, stuff, yeah, just interesting stuff. Yeah, fantastic. Interesting stuff. So mm. I've been listening to a few of the short ones. They do a really good one on Petrichor, oh, which I already okay. knew, but I didn't know the whole history of it. Petrichor is the word for that beautiful smell that you get when rain has fallen on dry soil. Oh, yeah. And it's the chemicals that are released oh, wow. right at the beginning of a rainstorm. And they go into who it was who invented it. It was some Melbourne scientists, I think. And it's not a very old word. I think it was invented oh, in so the they invent 80s. they invented the word. They put it together, ah. Petri meaning this and core yeah. meaning that. So that's a really good short episode. I just listened to a hilarious one which is the code for transporting dead bodies on airplanes. 
which has a very funny moment where he says they're talking about how they would normally go in the hold and the guy says, well, of course, they're not going to prop them up in, you know, row 23B. I think they've been known to do that in the past, though, haven't well, they? Let yes, them just sit in the seat. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just awful. I know. And, of course, as a fellow murder reader, you and I, you know, I know yeah. you would love this episode. <laughs> just the visual image of I'm this, to listen to pretending that one. this person's not dead in, in row 23B. Or delivering them a cup yeah. of tea or a glass just, of... Just sort of putting a rug over them, oh. hoping that the person next door I'm sure that did happen in, in days gone by. I'm sure it happens yeah. all the time. People yeah. die on planes. Yeah. Like my yeah. You're not going to lie them in the hmm? corridor for people well, to I walk over them, well, are you? Well, I don't know. And I did keep thinking, are they going to address the issue of someone dying mid-flight? Yes. And they didn't. So I feel like I need to contact I them. I think you do. I think you do. We need um, to know. Uh, so that was a really fun one. And then uh, they did a longer one all about the Rubik's Cube. Ah, uh, yes. Fantastic. So mm. interesting. Mm. All about the Hungarian guy who invented it and how, you know, just by an amazing stroke of luck, a waiter was seen playing with it in a Hungarian restaurant and a guy who was a toy distributor saw him what and said... What is the chance? Yeah, it's and, and, and who else had patented a similar invention in America? And, and, and is it Mr Rubik? Was the his Hungarian name, guy? His was surname he... was Rubik, but he hadn't called it Rubik. He'd okay. called it the Magic Cube or something like yeah, that. Yeah, okay. So it's really worth listening mm. to and there's endless ones like it. So that's been a lot of fun. The other thing I've been diving into is I've been watching Utopia mm. on ABC <laughs> iView. Oh, my God, I love that show. It is so hilarious. I loved the grumpy older lady temp that they're all scared yes. of. And they, they she's on the reception. Yeah, on reception. And they, go and they don't want to ask her to do anything because she's yes. just, you know, terrible. She'll only get sandwiches, not sushi, <laughs> when she goes out. <laughs> and she won't. She just looks at them and says, well, I can't possibly get to the mail. <laughs> Hilarious. And then there's the work experience boy and the jobs they give him and the staff satisfaction survey. It's genius, isn't it? It is it's genius. And it's genius. all completely preposterous, but at the same time, completely plausible. Oh, yeah. Especially if, like you and I, you've worked in Public government. Public service, <laughs> government. So I just found myself yeah. shrieking with laughter. I just yeah. love that. It's it's all too familiar, yeah, which know, makes it I know. Sort of it's sort of, you sort of cringe and laugh at the same yeah. time and in recognition. Mm. And the other thing I've been completely hooked on is the Netflix show called The Great Hack. It's a 2019 show. I think it only came out, it's only been released in Australia in, uh, for a few months. And it's about a, an hour and a half documentary about Cambridge Analytica, which is no more. It's gone into liquidation. But it was a data collection company. It was started by um, Steve Bannon, Trump's chief strategist. And another guy called Alexander Nix. And what they did was they collected 5,000 data points on every American and they used it in the Ted Cruz campaign and then they transferred that and used it in the Trump campaign. And they do this sort of personality profiling to change voting behaviour and they tap into apathy. Mm. And so they try and find people who are persuadable. And then they encourage people not to vote, mm. basically, which probably wouldn't work as well in Australia because we have compulsory voting. Although I gather that they were looking, before they went into liquidation, there was talk of them being briefed in Australia. Oh, wow. So even though they're not around anymore, all of this data is still available. And the documentary basically says that human data is worth more than oil. Mm. Mm. And it follows a young girl called Brittany Kaiser who worked for them and she 
becomes a sort of a whistleblower and gave evidence against them at an inquiry that the British Parliament investigated because they were involved in the Brexit campaign. And it also follows a journalist who I follow on Twitter called Carol Cadwallader. Yeah. She's a journalist with The Guardian and The Observer. She's got two fantastic TED Talks, which I really recommend. There's one where she talks about going back to her... Welsh village mm. to figure out why it was one of the places that voted most to leave the EU, yes, the EU, which she found bewildering because it's one of the places that's actually benefited the most from being, mm. being a member of the EU. When you drive around, there's infrastructure and buildings and projects and all sorts of things mm. being done that are employing people and the place is thriving. So she went around and asked people, you know, why they had voted to leave the EU and they were all terrified of Turkish people coming in and taking our jobs or we're getting, you know, we've got too many immigrants or all sorts of things that just didn't add up. And she realised that Facebook had been using all this data and information and then the Leave EU campaign, which is headed by a guy called Aaron Banks, who's now suing her, had targeted all those people and then sent them all these advertisements, which are completely false and they're demonstrably mm. not true and are unable to be really checked because no one else is receiving them. So it's a fantastic documentary. I really recommend I, it. I did have a look at it because you told me about it. And I'm going to a couple of Dorothy Dixes. I was just quite interested. I thought that they were really setting... Brittany Kaiser up in the documentary in a bit of a negative light. Very negative. They had her swimming in that pool in Thailand. Yes. And they were trying to make her out to be some flibbity gibbet, weren't they really? I, I thought, oh, yeah. I, I thought the documentary guy was pretty hard on her. Very hard on yeah, her. Yeah, I, I, th I thought that was a But then you, you listen and you hear her... Backstory. Well, also there's that secret footage of her laughing and joking in meetings... Yes. ...about how they influenced the Trinidad and Tobago election. Yes. And yes. She was completely in on all of this. And yes. she now has a lot of shame. Yes, she does. About she does. It. And, and and look, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm the jury's out for me on with her. They I don't think they knew the where they were heading with her in the documentary. I yeah. think they presented her in a particular way. Yeah. And then things came to light yeah. that they were yeah, anyway, well, that's quite interesting. But, but even if you put her out of it, I don't think that there's any argument about the collection of Data, no, 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 there isn't. There which isn't. is the thing to be really but concerned about. on that about. point, I did feel that the documentary let Facebook off a little bit. To me, yeah. to me, I mean, and obviously it was a documentary about Cambridge Analytica. Yes. But I did feel that they'd purchased the yes. information from Facebook. Yeah. And they showed Zuckerberg at the hearings mm. in Britain mm. giving evidence. But really, I, I don't know, I just felt they, that... They need to do another whole program I thought, about Facebook, Yeah, I thought they? Facebook was let off the hook a mm. little bit in the mm. documentary, mm. who, after all, have gathered, gathered all the information. And still around. Yeah. So they're much more yeah. of a concern yeah, for us. absolutely. Yeah. All, all of this actually got me really thinking about whistleblowers, because, in a sense, Carol Cadwallader is a whistleblower, mm. although she's a paid journalist. She is sort of the truth speaker. She's someone mm. who has stumbled on a lot of information through her investigations. And Brittany Kaiser is. And I just think it must be the ultimate bad luck to find yourself in that role where you're in the wrong place at the wrong time mm. and you have to make that moral decision of, do I or don't I? Yeah, I just, mm. oh, my gosh. And they they literally are in the wrong place at the wrong time. I remember going to a 
conference, a lawyer's conference where a, a guy who'd been a Victoria policeman did a whole spiel about his experience being a whistleblower and he had turned up to work, first day of work, newly minted police officer and the sergeant was told, you know, I'll take him out on your rounds. He took him off to some pub in some seedy area. They sat down and then all this cash, wads of cash started being handed over to buy their silence in relation to prostitution that was being run. And that's his first day at work, yeah, full yeah, of hope. Yeah, it was just terrible. And he decided he had to speak up about this and he, it took over his entire life. He was being watched, he received threats, he had to keep moving house, he had poppy seeds thrown over his fence in one of his supposedly secret locations so that one day he woke up to find the whole front yard covered in opium poppies you know, got terrible mail and he lost family and friends and colleagues. I mean, they become unemployable too, a lot of yeah, them. Yeah, no, completely unemployable. And they're treated like criminals, a bit like you were saying about Brittany Kaiser. You yeah. know, she's, she's portrayed in a pretty shadowy light. And I imagine it must take a terrible toll on their mental and physical health. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I think so. And as you say, that there's a tipping point where you're you're in possession of information and you know it's going to ruin your life. Yeah. But you just feel you just have to yeah. disclose. Yeah. Must, must be a terrible moment. Mm. So what have you been diving into, Lou? Well, I read another book this week. It's been on my to-read list for a little while. Um, one of my sons has been urging me to read this author for a while. The book is Being Mortal by, by Atul Gawande. Atul is a preeminent surgeon in Boston, and he's got a very impressive CV. <laughs> um, reads something like Harvard, Oxford, Stanford. Oh, my goodness. Not sure of the order, but he's also, he's been a staff writer on the New Yorker magazine since, uh, I think, 1998. And I have to say, for people that might be deterred by his CV, um, you shouldn't be because he writes in a way that's accessible mm. sort of to everybody. Um, look, Being Mortal is about death and ageing and particularly how inadequate the conversations are that we're all having and the particularly that doctors are having with patients that are ageing and deteriorating and generally how poorly uh, society responds to the elderly. Yeah. And this is particularly topical in Australia at the moment because, of course, we've, we're in the middle of a National Royal Commission into aged care yes. uh, and aged care homes. Yes. The hearings are taking place in each state and evidence being is being taken from health workers and families and other interested parties. Uh, so I think we're expected to hear the result of the findings of that Royal Commission mid next year. Mm. And then also last week in Western Australia, the government introduced the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill. Yes. So there's going to be a lot of submissions and debate in Parliament. We're already yes. having a lot of debate There's a publicly. lot of debate, a lot of stuff in the papers. Um, lots of campaigns for voluntary euthanasia. Yeah. Um, so it's a huge issue for all of us yeah. lo looking after the, the aged and the consequences that follow. So in Being Mortal... A tool makes the observation, the obvious observation, that medical science has made such huge advances that we're all living so much longer into our eighth and ninth decades. And we're all being offered far more cures and medical procedures to keep us going, at least our mm. bodies, not mm. our minds so much, but our, our yeah. bodies going. And he, he questions the wisdom of this approach, essentially. And in his experience, uh, many, if not most of those procedures that elderly patients are offered will restore the patient to the life they had before their decline. Very few of them will. And in fact, there hasn't been a discussion with that patient about how they imagine 
that procedure is going to benefit them. Yeah. And most of those procedures will have a huge impact on mobility and independence. Yeah. I'm sort of with him on this. I think there's a certain age after which... We probably shouldn't be spending lots no, of money on no. operations and hip replacements. and Yeah, no, look, I agree. Mm. I agree. And that he suggests that the medical profession need to start having sort of really frank conversations with patients about their feelings. Yeah. And about their anxieties. Yeah. So instead of just clinical discussions about procedures and sizes of tumours and, yeah. and, and operations that might make a very slight change to your life, you know, we should be talking to them about how they want to live out their final years. Yeah. Um, but doctors, of course, find this hard to do. We all find this hard to do. Yeah. You know, we and all avoid these discussions. Yeah. And I don't think doctors have been trained really no, to, to no, have that. No, I think that's right. Conversation. And he also talks, this was an interesting point, he also talks about the impression that we have that we treated our elders so much better in the past and particularly in traditional non-Western families we have this view that the elderly lived with their extended family at home and they were cared for by the next generation but he kind of busts this myth a bit and, and he says that this really was driven by economics you know children really only stayed around to inherit the family home and the family business yes and which doesn't happen anymore no. because kids are going off and getting medical degrees like yeah, he did exactly so the parents livelihood is no longer the children's livelihood the mm. children seek their own livelihood and so in in that scenario the elders did stay behind and the baton the, the sort of family financial baton was passed on yeah but eventually of course in developing societies at least people get their own financial independence and they choose to live apart from their parents and in fact their parents encourage it because Mm. their parents want to keep their own home they want to keep their own independence and they don't want to be a burden on their children yeah so this of course led to the development of nursing homes yes exactly when they were unable to live by themselves parents didn't go and mm. return to their children, mm. that they moved into a nursing home. And yeah. he, he charts the development of nursing homes and that aspect of it is really interesting yeah. and very interesting in light of, of the Aged Care Royal Commission. Yes, yes. So, I, I look, I'd recommend the book. It's got lots of great stories in it and lots of personal stories from dealing with his own family and his own patients. And the end of the book, he talks very personally about the death of his father oh. and the conversations that he uh, was able to have with his father Uh, and his perspective of the medical profession around his father, the the medical staff, rather, around his family that were able to have really meaningful discussions with his father and those that weren't. And I think he learned from that as a surgeon. Both what to do and what not to do, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I hope each aspiring young doctor and nurse reads Mm. this book. It's really interesting and and it's easy to read. Mm. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, Whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us, because that will mean we can grow our audience. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in.